Thank you for joining us on this Memorial Day weekend playlist. Today we're continuing the study of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. When God talks back. And that is what we'll be studying today, in fact, where God speaks back to Habakkuk. As last week we heard Habakkuk's prayer to God and questioning to God of the things that he didn't seem to be doing. Before we begin that, though, I want us to, before we jump into what God responds with, I want us to look back at how Habakkuk had talked to God and what he had said. And so starting in chapter 1, verse 2, here's what it says. Habakkuk writes, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Injustice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. But see, God does hear Habakkuk. And he's going to respond to him. And when God speaks back to this prophet, he will say things that Habakkuk never understood at the time and could not understand because what he's about to say back to him is not what he would expect. Now, if I can spoil the book of Habakkuk for us a little bit, but use this also as a reminder what this entire letter is really about, it's simply this. Faith rooted in God no matter what. Faith rooted in God no matter what. So that's the brief synopsis of this entire book, but I'd, I want us to study God's response to Habakkuk today, where God says, not only am I not passive, but I am involved behind the scenes and you don't even realize it. But it will require faith, belief that trusts God to actually be put into practice because how God is going to address the sin of Judah will not be what Habakkuk or other people would expect or even how they think that God would do it. So in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, we'll get to this in a few weeks, he says something that is quoted very often from this book, but I want us to take a look at this. He starts with, in verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But then he says this, But the righteous shall live by his faith. So there is this understanding that God is going to reiterate over and over throughout the Bible, throughout the word of God, that those who are found innocent of sin that they have committed against God are not the ones who worked harder than others or tried harder to not sin, but those who actually live by faith that is gifted by God. They are considered righteous. Those who are living by faith, they have right standing with God. Not those who are self-righteous, not those who are self-exalting, not those who try to self-justify, but those who have faith in God, in what he says, and they are identified by that faith in God. So let's look at God's mind-blowing response to Habakkuk and the people of Judah. Here's what it says in verse 5. Look at the nations and watch. And be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. God heard Habakkuk and responded. Think about that for a second. Habakkuk is essentially complaining to God. God hears him and he responds back to him. Do we understand the depth of this truth? 
If we've grown up in the church or maybe we're in a season of going through the motions, we can miss the magnitude of this reality. Did you pray this week? Do you believe that God heard that prayer? Do you believe that he's responded to your prayer? See, God hears and responds to his people. It is part of his character. It is what God does. And he is aware. He knows us. He knows our days. He knows the number of our days on this earth. He knows the hairs on our head. But if we know that that's true about God, that he's all-knowing, that he knows us so well, maybe we don't think that God says yes enough. That maybe God's a constant killjoy. Maybe he's just a stickler and just says no all the time. But what we just read, what he starts with as he's replying to Habakkuk is one of two verses that is quoted in Habakkuk most often. But like anything, without context, we can make the scripture say whatever we want it to say. And here's what he's saying in reply to Habakkuk's questioning of what seems like God's lack of interest and lack of care by not intervening quick enough. He's saying back to Habakkuk, stand back. You are about to be amazed at what's about to happen. And even if I told you, you probably would not be able to understand it and you probably wouldn't believe it. But he's not just speaking to Habakkuk. God is speaking to those in the nation of Judah, the tribe of Judah. He is speaking in the plural, and he says that you will be amazed. Now, I hear amazed, and I think of a joyous occasion, but this is more of an astounded. You can see amazed the same way you see in awe. The emotion that leads to your mouth dropping and you not having any control of your expression. God was going to answer a prayer right now, but he wasn't going to do it in the way that Habakkuk would expect. Have you ever asked God for something and he didn't seem to answer your prayer in your very short attention span? So then you just moved on. We don't keep track of what we actually ask God if we're honest about it. So then we forget or don't even realize when he actually does answer our prayers. See, God tends to do one of three things. He tends to say no, yes, or not yet. And God does say no, but there's a really great reason to why he says no. Sometimes it's simple disobedience. Now, hear me, hear what I'm not saying as well. I don't want you to think that by me saying that the reason that sometimes he doesn't bless us is because we're disobedient, but scripture does tend to point out that he holds back things. Because we are yet to realize our obedience is love towards God. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, the disciple whom Jesus loved writes, and he says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases now, please don't read that as a formula of how to get things from God. Read it as the result of our love for God being manifested through keeping his commandments, being manifested by doing what he says. Now, let me make a point. A loving parent should never reward rebellion. I want you to think about that for a second. A loving parent should never reward rebellion, and God is the most loving parent anyone can ever have. 
God's sovereignty, God's will is so beautiful that God, God sometimes in our context, in our relationship with him, his will and his sovereignty is so beautiful that sometimes he says no. Because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And if God gave us everything that we wanted, we'd just be spoiled, spiritual little brats that don't really want to grow, but really want to be our own God. So have you looked at this time that we're currently in where the world is totally different than it was just a few months ago? And it's probably not ideal for you, as it's not ideal for me. But have you looked to see if maybe what you're experiencing is an answer to prayer that you once asked God for? That maybe what you're experiencing now is an answer to prayer of something you asked long ago? I really didn't like how little family time I was getting working as consistently as I was. Now, I love my job. I love to meet with people. I love to teach God's word and to counsel and to shepherd and encourage and disciple. But I was realizing that I wasn't spending a lot of time at home. Aaron was doing the, the lion's share of, of most of the parenting. And I also noticed that in that time when I was working as hard as I was, I, I was gaining weight. I didn't really feel that healthy. But now I have more time at home. Now I get to be around the kids every single day and for most meals. And I have a lot more time to exercise as well. So circumstances are sometimes used to answer prayers, but I, I know that circumstances are always able to sanctify. Now, we say this pretty often, that the sanctification process is messy. It's not at all linear. It's often all over the place. It's everywhere. So God uses circumstances and our responses to those circumstances to refine and smooth out the edges of our spiritual lives. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7, through 7, Peter writes, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor, when Jesus Christ is revealed. Trials expose the realism of your faith and who that faith is in. And the Bible, the, the book that we read so we can know our God better, is so much more than a textbook unto salvation. It is a faith story of progressive sanctification that takes place after you bend your knee by faith to a loving and perfect and holy and beautiful God in Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see today is God pointing out how this faith story is laid out. In verse 6 of Habakkuk 1, God continues and he says, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Judah, with all their forgetfulness and disobedience, would find judgment. But God wasn't going to send a flood or plagues to carry this judgment out. He was going to utilize a nation that we know of as Babylon in what can be seen as one of the most scandalous uses of God's power in all of history. Why? Because Babylon wasn't a God-fearing nation. In fact, they were just the opposite. They made Judah look religious and obedient in comparison. 
Babylon was a nation and an area and a symbol of disobedience and arrogance. Ancient, ancient Babylon was located in modern-day Iraq. Ancient Babylon rose to dominance after breaking free from the bonds of the Assyrians. Babylon rose from a Mesopotamian city on the Euphrates River to become a powerful city-state and later the capital city of its namesake of one of the greatest empires in history. The city was located on the east side, about 55 miles south of modern Baghdad. Babylon's history intersected the biblical timelines early and often, and the influence of the Babylonians on Israel and on the world history, or in-world history, is profound. The Bible's first mention of Babylon starts in Genesis 10. The Tower of Babel is found in Genesis 11. Now, in English, it's easy to make the connection between Babel and Babylon, but in Hebrew, it's the exact same word. This chapter cements Babylon's reputation as a city of rebellion against God from then on. The biblical writers consistently use Babylon as a symbol of evil and of defiance. There is much written about Babylon and their conquests and their eventual defeat. If you want to know more, start reading in 2 Kings around chapter 20 and then on. But God is making known to Habakkuk that his plan is to use a nation against Judah as judgment against Judah's lack of repentance. Now, if you're thinking about this from a higher up 30,000 foot view, this kind of seems unfair, right? Judah wasn't innocent, but neither was Babylon. Judah had years of unrepentance, but they also had times of godly rule in their history. But here's the thing with the gospel. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good God is. Here's what I mean. We compare ourselves all the time to someone else. We think we aren't as bad as someone else. But that's not God's economy. His economy is not based on our goodness. Because as Romans 3, starting in verse 23, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if all of us have fallen short, if all of us have sinned, why would we compare? Because the truth is, we want to earn something more than we want to be gifted something. We all want credit. We want to think we have justified ourselves somehow. The idea that someone would have to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves means that we don't get credit. But just as a hammer should not get praised for building a house, we cannot take credit for our salvation or even when we're used by God. Praise God for a person who has helped encourage you. Praise God for a person who has pointed out the truths of the scripture. But God is the one who gets the praise, not the person. That's why we praise God. But Paul goes on in Romans 3. He says in verse 24, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. Don't miss that. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just 
and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It seems as if Paul wants to make known that all of the credit is due Jesus through grace. No one ever should act as if they deserve grace because that disqualifies grace from being grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve, so you can't act as if you deserve it. So how does this apply to Judah that Habakkuk is complaining about and to Babylon, which God is going to use? Here's a disclaimer for what I'm about to say. I'm about to point out an attribute of God that most of us will agree with, at least on the surface level, until it affects us. Are you ready? God can do what he wants because he is God. Now, God cannot sin, and God doesn't want to sin because God is God, which means he is holy, he is set apart from things like sin. But because God is holy, because he's pure, because sin is disgusting and has no business being near or around God because of his holiness, God must have wrath against sin. He must distance himself from sin. He must be, this distance must be more than a face mask. Sin cannot be in God's presence. And so he brings wrath upon sin. Now for the Christian, wrath has come down on our sin when Jesus hung on the cross and he took the punishment for yours and my sin if we've trusted Jesus Christ. But for those who want nothing to do with God's gift of grace, through the person and work of Jesus, the wrath against their sin is something they still get to look forward to. Now, I don't say that to scare, but to admit, sin does not go unpunished. Neither Jesus takes it upon himself, and we incur, either he takes it upon himself, and now all of a sudden, all of the wrath of God has been placed on Jesus for sin, or we incur it ourselves. Now, I like God's plan more than I like my pride to think that I can earn anything. But God can only be the proper judge of sin and everything if he knows all the facts. And I'm grateful that the word of God says in Job chapter 28, verse 24, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. So not only is he not ignorant to any sin committed, but he isn't oblivious to anyone's heart either. There's no such thing as a secret with God. Let me, let me say that again because I don't want you to just hear and go, oh yeah, I know. There is no such thing as a secret from God. There's nothing you can do that by shutting your door to your room or turning off the lights that God cannot see. That's not meant to sound like some creepy Christmas carol. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Awkward. What I mean is so many people act like God's not in the room. Can we just be real about this? And we are comfortable in our sin because we refuse to believe that God is in the room with us. So unless we're coming to a church building, remember, church is the people, not the steeple. We kind of forget that God's around, don't we? But the fact that he is that close shouldn't scare us to be more compliant, but it should make us be more reliant. I'm sorry, I didn't mean for that to, to rhyme. 
because we can be reliant upon him because he's with us. He's not far away from any of us. So Habakkuk's asking God, are you going to intervene? And God replies, yes, yes, I am. So Habakkuk doesn't have to question if God is here. He doesn't have to question if God knows what's happening. He doesn't have to question if God's idle. But when we sin, we think we're more crafty than the authority, don't we? We think, well, God doesn't know about what I just did. We may never say that, but we act like it. I remember when I was a kid, I remember the first time I, I on purpose attempted to lie to my father. When I was a child, I did not like to shower. And now my kids are very similar. But I remember I was supposed to go to school. And I was supposed to shower in the morning. My dad was sleeping. I was supposed to get up and shower. I, I think I was like 10. I, mean, I was probably younger than that, maybe eight. And I... I was supposed to take a shower, and so what I did was I went into the bathroom, I spent a little bit of time in there, and then I came out, and I think I wet my hair in the sink. And my dad looks at me and he goes, did you shower? And I said, yes. And then he walks into the bathroom and he goes to the shower and he looks at the bottom of the shower and he puts his hand on the bottom of the shower and he goes, if you showered, why isn't the shower wet? I thought I was more crafty than my authority, but I wasn't. And unfortunately for a lot of us, when we get caught in a lie or in some type of sin, we just try to cover up those things with more lies. But when we question God's authority, the way that we're living essentially says, God, you're not enough for me. I can figure out what will satisfy me apart from you. Now, here's the thing. Nothing satisfies us outside of a deep, committed, and obedient relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. I don't know if you believe me. There is nothing that satisfies us outside of a deep, committed, and obedient relationship with Jesus Christ. Read Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Solomon, King Solomon, had access to every pleasure in the world. And what was his mantra throughout the book? Everything is meaningless. And a lot of times we read that book with this depressed tone, but I think Solomon wrote it to say, don't be like me. Don't be me. You don't have to make the mistakes that I've made. Listen to my story and do sooner what I wish I had done, which was attempt to stop satisfying myself with everything but being committed to God. God is God and he can do what he wants within his good and pleasing will. He can do whatever he decides to do. And so if he wants to show the tribe of Judah they are unrepentant by having them be defeated by a nation that is even more unrepentant, he can absolutely do that. Not because he's evil, but because he's gracious to show that the gospel is not by means of effort, but by means of God's control and plan. So if God wants to allow for terrible things to happen, he must have a reason and a purpose behind those things. He didn't cause it, but he allows it. Trusting that God has got us in the midst of some gnarly trials and difficult things that we're going through is something we forget about often. And if we're honest, we're pretty resistant against. We talk a lot about that God doesn't sanctify with pillows. But he uses circumstances to grow us. And maybe we can believe that when the circumstances are momentary. But what about when they're catastrophic? What about when they last for years? 
That's where Habakkuk was coming from. He didn't understand why God had just seemed so silent for so long when it came to Judah's disobedience. But I want to read you parts of 2 Peter chapter 3, and I want to point out something about God. Here's what Peter writes. He says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you, and I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you towards wholesome thinking. I want to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Then jump to verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, Peter says, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now skip to verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So you want to know why God isn't quick to do everything in the way that you would do things? Because he looks towards eternity. And we're looking towards this moment. His eternal perspective is what makes his patience so beautiful. He's not passive. He's not disconnected. He's composed and he's involved in our lives with our eternity and our sanctification in mind. Verse 6, I am raising up the Babylonians, God says, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. The Babylonians, or the Chaldeans in some translations, were a nation that God was allowing to take over Judah, and they wouldn't fight fair, and they wouldn't at all be humane. They are a feared, verse 7, feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves, and they promote their own honor. Not only were they not humane, but they spoke highly of themselves with the intent to intimidate while also exalting themselves and their power. One thing that we as Christians grow in and must be if we truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is humble. I'm not saying we've all attained this once we become a Christian, but a Christian who thinks that they added to their salvation is not a Christian at all. Jonathan Edwards said it really well. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So as followers of Jesus who have understood we did nothing to be saved, but stop attempting to save ourselves, we cannot be arrogant. We cannot be conceited or feel as if we deserve anything that is truly just a gift given to us. Because if we think we deserve salvation, we cannot receive salvation. But Babylon, they didn't want salvation. They just wanted to conquer other armies and take over land and have people exalt them. And what is God doing? He's letting them have what they want, devoid from him. Babylon may be used to take over Judah, but it doesn't last. Eventually, Babylon, in their arrogance, will be taken over by the Persians. But God is patient. And he will allow things to take place to give people an opportunity for repentance and growth. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. 
Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. God is using metaphorical language that is strong to make known to Israel that they will not stand against this army of Babylon. Their horses are quick. They're fiercer than wolves at dusk. Wolves who haven't eaten all day that are hangry. Verse 9. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They're stronger, they're more violent, and they're more diligent in war than you are, Judah. You have no shot. Verse 10, they mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. They're violent. They're arrogant. These are words that should bring terror to Judah's army as God speaks this to Habakkuk and to Judah, who is minute and will be powerless against such an empire. God was not saying this because he was trying to motivate Judah to pool their resources to fight against the Babylonians, but to make clear and known that they would not be able to win so that they need to understand laying down their sword was their only course of action. Verse 11, then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. This proud nation will get what they want in taking over Judah. They will trade momentary satisfaction for eternal condemnation. And Jesus speaks about this as well. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants, loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? John Calvin, while writing a commentary on this specific passage, put it this way, Christ reminds them that the soul of man was not created merely to enjoy the world for a few days, but to obtain at length its immortality in heaven. I believe that as we're in this life, there is this internal conflict between the momentary and the eternal. Because until we see eternity with Christ, we by faith have to believe him at his word that he is beautiful, he is more desirable than what anything that today can bring. I've been struck this week with that realization that there is nowhere that I can go apart from where God sees me. There is no emotion I can keep to myself that is kept from him. And instead of getting down on myself for not realizing this sooner, I want to appreciate that I've had multiple, I spit again, I've had multiple moments this week where I could delight in the fact that I don't have to put on an act when it comes to God. He accepts me, listen, God accepts me because of Jesus Christ, not because of my efforts. And the more I remember and appreciate that, and appreciate that he's sheltering in place with me, the more I could live my life in the freedom of being his child. The biggest judgment that a perfect and holy God can give any of us is to give us exactly what we want without him. Habakkuk wanted justice, 
And it was coming, but it didn't come the way he expected. Judah wanted to do things their own way, and God was allowing it, but it would never satisfy, and the consequences were going to come due soon. Babylon, or the Babylonians wanted nothing to do with God because they considered themselves sovereign, and God was going to give them what they wanted in taking over Judah. But they were also going to get justice in this life and the next. I'm a child of God who sometimes believes that I'm sovereign, that I am the center of the universe. I sometimes choose the temporal over the eternal, but how much more praise can and should be given to God for intervening while I was at my worst, Christ died in my place, so that I could know and trust and love and want and need and delight in King Jesus King. We're going to take an offering, and I'm going to pray for it in just a moment. I know prayer over a video is already kind of weird, and I just want to thank those who are continuing to give towards the work of this ministry at the church. We are very, very grateful that we can continue to minister in this way. We can continue to feed our families and support ourselves because of the generosity and the obedience and the faith of the people that are giving. And so if you are giving, thank you. If you are yet to give, but you're a part of this community, I want to encourage you to do so, not because God needs your money, not even because we need your money, but because it's part of your faith being put into practice that money does not own you, but Christ Jesus owns you. And so that you trust him, even with your wallet, even with your time, even with your talents, you're willing to give back a portion to the Lord because it's all his anyway. So let's pray. Before we spend this time in worship, worship team, you can come on up. And let's pray. And let's pray in this time with the understanding that God's going to do amazing things through the work of his people. Not because we need praise, not because we did anything, but God has decided to use messed up people like us for the glory of his name. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that the book of Habakkuk speaks more into 2020 than I think I ever would have realized until we started to study it in this season. God, thank you that you're at work and thank you that you love your people. I pray that you would take this offering, no matter how large or how little, and you would take it and you would multiply it to make disciples of all nations and generations. God, would you continue to bring peace to your people? Would you continue to bring safety to your people? Would you continue to use the people of COV to make much of Jesus? And would you get all the praise that you're due through us? We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.